Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 248, 248, heading towards the magic 250, Friday, July the 1st, a new month, Mark, 2022. How are you? I was that? I, I cut off, that cut off Mr. Rub. <laughs> intro man. Mr. Intro man. He, he, he sometimes gives me the willies. Um, so I, he does hang on. <laughs> sometimes he keeps repeating himself too, doesn't he? A bit like what we do. So Yes, so I have you been? I've apparently been, you've been, been actually working for once. I know, I know. You've you've caught me. I, well, I had to put us back a little bit uh, for recording because I was still at work. Um, I'm doing a locum for a friend um, and, uh, and I was saying to you uh, earlier, in the week how crikeys i don't know when i was doing this full time um it never used to make me as tired as it does now doing this locum my goodness how how you and all the other people who keep working manage i don't know brendan yes well that's the difficulty doing locums though isn't it you're going into a practice where you don't know where the needles and syringes are let alone um the practice management software and dealing <laughs> yeah. with the staff and, and and working out what works with with um each particular staff member in, in firing them up and what pushes their buttons etc so it's it's and then you've got to deal with the clients and uh, the, all the clients are obviously in long-term practices have a different vibe don't they uh, they do have a different vibe and it's fascinating how while we're all doing the same thing and communication is so much better these days we all have a look at how everyone else does things we listen to podcasts um it is certainly there are certainly idiosyncrasies of each practice things are done a certain way in a given practice that might just be a slightly different flavor and you've got to adapt to those too yes and that's it's part of the challenge isn't it and you know, <laughs> well, you know, at I'm, one stage after I got a bit tired of it, Mark, um, probably 20-something-odd years ago, I was doing many locums and also, well, and working part-time at several different clinics and um, you have to be sort of adaptable there. But, um, yes, but it's you, you, you're not doing it for very long, so hang in there, Mark. And um, we had a bit of a chat off air about a few cases and it looks like you're you're smashing them out of the ballpark, Mark, and uh, just enjoying it, Brendan. Doing just a good enjoying job, and that's it. what we want, Mark. Um, for those new listeners, Mark, if they need to contact us, vetgurus at gmail.com and vetgurus.com is our website. Go there, you'll find all our previous 247 episodes for your listening pleasure. And have a look at our sponsors there and, and poke around there. Um, Enjoy. So I'm going to jump into our first news story, Mark, because we are going to record in very late at night here, Mark. We're going to <laughs> um, jump into our news items here. And mine's about, well, it's, you, you've got a bit of a twist on this one, which um, sort of gazumps me, Mark, but um, scientists have finally cracked a 41-year-old mystery about an ancient egg shell in Australia from a large extinct terrestrial bird which has a demonic nickname and it was 
going back to 1981 when researchers discovered remnants of numerous eggs from cooking files used by prehistoric humans in Australia dating to about 50,000 years ago. And they identified some of the eggs as being almost certainly from emus, but some of the eggs were massive and they couldn't work out what type of bird it was from. And the bottom line is that they did finally work out it was from Genorus newtoni, which was an intimidating creature, and it is known as the Demon Duck of Doom, Mark. Uh, what a fantastic name. It is, and it is a fantastic name. It, the, so the debate's been put to rest, and it was because it was Australia's last, what was called, or the other name for it was uh, the Thunderbird. And why is it the Demon Duck of Doom? Because it was massive. It was stood over two metres or six and a half feet tall, and it tipped the scales at around about 240 240 mark kilograms, which is around about 530 pounds for those of you in the US of A and some other areas where we, they still go talk about pounds. So it's a big bird mark. Um, so they called it a mega duck. And they, oh, I suppose, gee, I, if I had one of these mega ducks bearing down on me, Mark, and quacking at me, I, I think I'd be running the other way, would you? Um, Definitely. Ducks. So these mega ducks also laid large eggs and they averaged around about one and a half or 1.6 kilos, which is 3.5 pounds. So they're big eggs and it was thought that they were perhaps, perhaps a um, – ideal source of protein um, for the original inhabitants of Australia, the Indigenous Australians. I've got visions, um, Brendan, visions of... Um, of it's an, a big scrambled um, egg, Mark. <laughs> it's a big scrambled egg, but hold, run like I wouldn't want the job of distracting the, mo the mother or father bird who is doing the sitting so someone else could nab it. Um, I've just got visions of being that person. Um, and uh, trying to drag the Thunderbird, the six-foot Thunderbird, away from its egg so someone can grab it and have uh, one egg make a huge scramble. Yeah, that's there. a big bird. And you have we have a little postscript to that story, um, which you have, Mark. Tell us about oh, it. Oh, I was just uh, – this story reminded me just of a week ago. I was in Alice Springs, and they have a wonderful museum there which focuses on the excavation of fossils at Alcuta. 200 kilometres north of Alice Springs, and they have uh, one of the precursors, one of the the birds that gave rise to Genurus, um, the um, another one of the, the the Thunderbird. In fact, the biggest Thunderbird from a little bit further in the past, um, between two and eight million years ago, um, and this one was three metres tall. But they had a model of the, you know, a, a yeah. A life-size three-meter model of in the foyer, and I did stand next to it. And I will um, make sure that I get a photo to you, Brendan. You must. I used to love the Thunderbirds, the TV show. <laughs> Thunderbirds are go. That's right. Speaking so of, it's my story, Mark. Speaking of birds that are go, um, uh, the other article that I'd like to discuss is uh, I think it's in uh, the weekend. One of the weekend newspapers. Uh, you know those. Um, uh, articles that are the, the weekend magazines. Yes. Um, and this article asks why so many Australians feed birds. And um, it f focuses on one particular couple who are feeding uh, rainbow lorikeets. 
um, but Tom, the the Deb, the female partner in this couple, uh, has also feeds magpies and ducks, and um, she has a bit of a passion for it. And it it just does point. You know, you and I have had a talk a number of times about um, uh, the way that um, Australians do feel the need to feed. Uh, particularly suburban birds. And this has started a bit of a discussion with um, particularly Dr. Daryl Jones, an urban ecologist who has published several times um, in the scientific literature, but also has a couple of uh, popular lay books about um, uh, about uh, feeding birds. And he claims that he was trolled terribly after he published his first book, um, uh, um, what uh, that that suggested it wasn't such a bad thing to um, to feed birds and geez, I've spent my whole veterinary career discouraging people from feeding wild birds and um, and I still think it's probably the best thing to not feed them. But I understand Dr. Jones's contention that um, people are going to do it no matter what you tell them. And um, maybe the best course of action is to um, try and guide them to do it well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you, do you do? You put any seeds out for birds in the backyard, Brendan? No, I don't. But I view it like my children, Mark, when they were younger. Basically, you need to feed them and you may as well try and feed them well. So you try and do it the best you can. I uh, um, love that. That's my flippant answer. But yes, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because you, you, you like the and there's a couple of good pictures there, isn't there, of um, some rainbow lorikeets there feeding a seed yeah, mix. Yeah, it's seed mix. Seed mix there. But um, and we'll have the link to that at vetgurus.com. Um, it, gee, it it encourages people to connect with nature, doesn't it? And, and there's certainly in my opinion, nothing wrong with that. But it's uh, the whole choice of what's the... I think that ecologist was right in that, you know, let's... let's this, What's the ideal and, and what's sort of practical and let's try and push towards what's practical and encouraging people to feed a slightly better supplement to those birds and, and, and try and encourage them to feed a, a supplement rather than them becoming... And this is my, to that. one of my uh, problems in life, Brendan, is that I'm an idealist. And I do think that there is, um, you know, a, an argument to say that near enough is good enough. And and probably there are, is some, like we've had situations with uh, kookaburras brought in to, that, that have had metabolic bone disease that obviously have, have uh, formed a habit uh, with meat diets and not all rounded whole of whole prey diets but but they are the exception and and what is the great you know what is the net good i suppose there might yes. be some negatives but um, if people connect with those animals and care about them then they're more likely to protect local parks and nature reserves and and uh, be less interested in seeing rampant development so it, i just don't know whether I'm good enough at judging the net good. Um, anyway, it, it, um, certainly people are not going to stop doing it just because I think it's not a good thing to do. I know that much. Yes, but it can be a, a way of having a discussion with that client when they say, I'm, I'm feeding the, the magpie or the bird. Um, you can 
to start to introduce some of the other concepts about, you know, perhaps we should be encouraging them to, you know, forage for themselves and to eat what's out there and what they naturally eat. Having said that, my dear mum um, is not with us anymore. Um, the, the last six months before she um, struggled at home and she had to um, go out of home, we'd go and visit her at home and and she'd uh, say, oh, God, excuse me, my magpie's here. And there's a magpie that would come up to the back door and tap on the window for her and then she'd, she'd go out and um, grab a nice piece of white bread bark and, and take it out, out back and uh, she's def- and, and I think biscuits as well. I forget what sort of biscuits she'd be feeding <laughs> at night. I just gave up. I just rolled my eyes and said, yeah, um, my mum's, you know, she's, oh, she was almost 90 and um, she she had this connection with this bird and that knew as soon as she actually, or she went, she had a fantastic lemon tree in the backyard and we'd often go and grab some lemons. And if she'd headed out into the backyard as well, the, the, the bird would magically appear um, <laughs> to be fed. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's, the ideal is not feeding them, definitely, is the answer to your question that you um, pondered to me early on, but um, I, I don't feed them in the backyard. We did have a bit of a discussion briefly, didn't we, about um, whether you should put a bird feeder in order to take photos of yeah, birds in your yeah. backyard um, because I've seen some of these YouTube channel, channels that I, I follow um, with taking photos with the camera that I recently acquired and they had some fantastic photos but it was birds so I just setting up a little feed station in their backyard and setting it up craftily enough to where only one bird would be able to perch near the seed ball or whatever they had there so they would have others coming in and you know fighting and that and they'd get fantastic pictures because they they could only have one bird sort of perching at a time um, and that's how they got those pictures marked so in a way i I thought, gee, that's a little bit of cheating, isn't it? Um, so anyway, that's my little uh, blurb about that. But a, an interesting story, and we'll link to it at vetgurus.com, so why so many Australians are feeding native birds, and I, I doubt it is dissimilar elsewhere in the world. So We'll have to also put up the link to the um, uh, the books that uh, Dr. Daryl Jones publishes because I will give credit where credit's due. He does make suggestions for better diets and that's like that discussion is an important one to have. If you are going to feed, you've got to do it properly. And um, that leads us into our main topic, Brendan. Yes, and this one is, well, we're on teeth, which we've covered a fair few times before, and we're talking about rabbits, which we have covered several times before, but I will, we'll have a link for this podcast, which is 248 to the previous podcast on rabbit dental disease, but we're covering a specific aspect of rabbit dental um, treatments here. So um, the previous one, just briefly, episode 26 and 35, gee, they must have been a long time ago, Mark, Dental Disease in Rabbits, part one, part two, they were called. Episode 84, we covered complex rabbit dental cases. Episode 132, we covered mandibular fractures in rabbits. And episode 142, we covered the technique of marsupialization of tooth root abscesses in rabbits. So have a listen to those if you haven't listened to any of our rabbit dental series. Um, but this week we're, we're getting back to basics and we're, we're talking about how to remove the cheek teeth in rabbits, which are the premolars and molars and colloquial 
particularly people normally just call them the cheat teeth um do you call do you when you label these in your clinical notes do you label them as ct as in cheek teeth one etc or do you still label them as premolar and molar no i don't i'm Um, a bit old school and i still do premolar and molar you would (laughs) yes with them so i'm probably an ancient um, fossil as far as regarding that. So we're going no, to talk I, about... I, I think it's good that you um, stick, because they are genuinely premolars and molars and they should be labelled accurately. I think you're doing a good job. Stick with it, Brendan. But um, to the, when you're thinking about removing these, when you're when you have to contemplate removing them, um, you've got to start at the beginning, don't you? You've got to, like, make an assessment of the degree of dental disease um, and um, and see what the nature of the clinical signs are. What sort of clinical signs do you look for in these rabbits, Brendan? Yes, well, we probably covered it in the other dental series we've had, but they can be anything from nothing, remembering that we do have a prey species here, so they may not show any signs of issues with eating at all or weight loss, etc. and yet, when you have a look inside that mouth, you might have a, a massive spur, for instance, an ulceration of the, the cheek or the tongue um, with that rabbit. So it may be nothing at all, or it may be our, our sort of typical signs that we see at anything from slobbers, which is a um, patialism, so um, slobbering, discharge from the mouth, um, being picky with the food so they don't like chewing on their their hay or their more fibrous food items and they might for instance just start um, taking some of the soft food or, or just the pellets if they're offered them um, and anything in between mark so um, it's always a very important point to look in the mouth of every rabbit that you see even if it's in there for a health check and a, and a vaccination mark and and we cover that in previous podcasts but bottom line is have a quick look at those incisors and use some sort of method to visually examine those back teeth and the good news is with that i think 95 to 99 percent of rabbits you can manage to do that in a consultation just with what i use is a is a soft little one of those little green um, plastic otoscope cones on my otoscope um, and then if the rabbit's chewing on it it's not going to break it break a bit of that tooth off and you can most of the rabbits you get a reasonably good visualization of those back teeth and um, as part of your general clinical exam well the where i'm doing the locum at the moment has some wonderful um you know duck build um, miniature duck build speculums that you can uh, relatively easily place in beside the incisor and then expand to give you a, a good view but i agree with you you've just got to find some way um, to get light and um, some space so you can see those teeth. You often can't see the, the whole lot easily, but um, fiddling around, um, you can generally get a pretty good view of what's going on and um, that can guide you with your next step, Brendan. Yes, and you do get the odd rabbit that absolutely freaks out and you cannot examine its back teeth at all um, in a clinical exam. So assuming we've looked at, the rabbit and we've decided let's keep it simple with this one we're talking about simple removal of cheek teeth we view that it needs to have one of those back teeth removed mark so we have the rabbit anesthetized 
what do we need to think about grabbing next, Mark? We need to think about grabbing the lignocaine, Brendan. Um, it's one of the things about uh, the rabbit's recovery is the control of pain. Um, and they often feel much better removing teeth that are loose and uh, may have um, infections or whatever ticking over. But um, the, the added advantage of subduing the pain using a local anaesthetic block um, really does help the recovery. So first thing, don't forget your local anaesthetic block. Yes, and I think we may have covered that elsewhere, but the ones that are typically used are the mental, local anaesthetic block, the mental nerve, the mandibular um, aspect, and also the infraorbital one, which is the maxillary teeth, and they do help. Otherwise, it might be almost like a local um, infiltration around the, the base of that tooth that you're um, um, extracting if you don't know um, how to do those particular local anaesthetic blocks. But you know, um, even a simple search, Google search even might might pull up the, those good little articles about how to do local anaesthetic blocks for rabbits um, with their teeth, Mark. Um, and then the second thing is, and this is the bad news, is if you don't have the gear, then don't do the extraction is my advice, Mark. This is one of the things, isn't it, Brendan? Yes. We, we regularly suggest to people who might be working in a, a general accession practice, a companion animal practice, they want to do a bit of exotic work, that they should take it on because most of the stuff uh, that's applicable to exotics can be um, adapted from the, the larger cats and dogs stuff. But this is one situation that that doesn't work. You have to have the right equipment. You have to have rabbit-specific elevators, luxators, and grasping forceps to make this happen. Absolutely. And yes, you can get away with extracting incisors with the modifica modifications of, of simple gear that's in the clinic, including just a bent, you know, large gauge needle, for examples, to help break down the break down the periodontal ligament there. But no, you need the gear. Um, the good news is, though, it's not particularly expensive these days. I think it's, you know, two to $400 Australian or something for the for kit. the um, whole kit there, which in the several companies that produce it, probably the one that most people obtain worldwide is the um, IM3 company, um, dental company will produce them. So it's going into making sure you know how to use them as well. And, and again, I think that's looking up some resources. Um, we'll try and briefly walk through the process of removing that cheek teeth here using those elevators and, and the grasping forceps etc here but I think nothing um, beats either visiting you know an exotics vet that will um, be able to show you how to do it um, firsthand or, or looking up some of the pictures in in a couple lots of the papers that are out there for in the exotics um, proceedings etc mark so um, and my other comment before I'll let you sort of work, work walk through the process of um, how to extract that tooth mark is patience. It's taking your time and, you know, it's, it's a bit similar to, you know, everybody's gone through the process of trying to remove that carnassial tooth in a dog and have sweat pouring down their forehead <laughs> trying to remove it. Um, but even with removing those, it, it's taking your time and not, not – um, not rushing things and even more so with these animals because they, some of these teeth as you'll see in a sec can be very very fragile so taking your time 
I, it's one of the few procedures, Mark, in my clinic that I actually sit down on one of those little surgery stools and um, hold the rabbit and have the table lowered um, so at a comfortable height for me. So I know I can just sit there and I can just ponder away as I'm as I'm slowly removing this tooth. And Brendan, it's interesting that you you mention carnassial teeth in dogs because there are some aspects to this which are analogous to um, to other species in rabbits do echo other species particularly in the ways you mentioned the patients you need but there are some specific things that you need to keep in mind with rabbit cheek teeth the premolars and molars and probably the one that I think of first is that if you look at these teeth in cross section, they are um, they're rectangular or uh, maybe almost square. They have four sides, and so I like to think about working each of those four sides, each of the quadrants, and um, and just uh, sliding the periosteal elevator down perpendicular to the long axis of the head, um, right into the jaw. Um, and um, and breaking down the ligament, and you've got to work each of the four sides uh, separately, and and it's not an easy thing. Like you can't in a rounded tooth, in, like in a dog, you can work your way around the outside. You that's not the way these ones work at all. You've just got to focus on each of one of the quadrants and work in there, um, and uh, work to separate the tooth from the alveolar bone using your elevator to break down the ligament. Yes, and I, and I think another key part of that is being a little bit bold in that um, remembering we've got very long roots with these teeth, are pretty long teeth, aren't they? And if, if you end up buying that dental gear kit from IM3, they also um, sell the little plastic model of the skull of the rabbit and also the see-through model which is fantastic for showing clients about how you know long these teeth are and how close to the to the mandible um, bone they go and the maxillary ones go very close to the to the orbit of the eye as well so have a have a think about the anatomy there and how long these roots are and and it's a long way that you have to press those elevators down isn't it mark and and be bold with doing that because we need to try and break it down right down to the base of that that tooth there um, and, and i don't do a lot of um like with a dog there might be a um a 10 to 15 degrees of leverage that you'll use to um to separate the tooth from the alveolar bone but i don't do that with rabbits i'm not looking to create any leverage effect i'm trying to slide the the uh, elevator almost parallel to the tooth um, and as you said you've got to have a bit of a mental picture of the extent to which you've got to go but it's a long way down into the mandible or up into the maxilla before you uh, have broken down all of the periodontal ligament and then of course you've got to do that on each of the four sides yes and put in I think once you've once you've broken it down on those four sides and, and put in a little bit of pressure in each of those four directions from those four quadrants there, uh, it, the good ones are where, where you sort of, you just feel the tooth give, don't you? 
Um, it, it suddenly gives and you don't hear a crack because if you hear the crack, you realise that it's broken and we'll talk about that in a sec, about what we do with those. Um, and it suddenly gives way gives. and it does have a lot of a lot of um, movement there and, and that's the point at which you grab those those grasping forceps that are designed to easily grab onto the cheek teeth of these rabbits and again you're just gently gently trying to um, ease it out of the socket there aren't we um, and if it's one that has a particular curvature there uh, and hopefully it may be one that you've you've already taken, taken some radiographs right. there so you realize what the curvature is on that particular tooth that we're extracting that we pull it out on that curve um, rather than directly just just 90 degree angle there um, and if all goes to well all goes well you will know whether or not you've managed to remove that whole tooth um, one you won't hear that crack of the tooth break in it and two you'll have that that germinal sort of tissue in the pulp there mark um, it does they see. look like a um like a sort of very large match don't they the red yes um, slightly they puffy, do they do um, now the question is and you've asked this to me before mark do you then do what some people recommend reverse that tooth and push it back into the socket to the theory is that it will ablate any germinal tissue that you've left behind no i don't um and similarly i don't um if i'm pulling teeth out of a dog i will impact the tooth to help break down the periodontal ligament that i haven't been able to damage with the, um, the elevator, I don't do that with rabbits. Um, I just keep working that periodontal ligament on its four sides um, till it, like you said, gives and I can just slide the tooth out, but I don't impact it. Um, I'm, my target is to just try and draw that germinal epithelium out uh, by gentle atraumatic extraction rather than um, have to try and impact it and uh, do something well i don't know the the times where we where i have contemplated that i don't know that it makes that much difference brendan no and i i, I actively would not recommend doing it because i have seen pictures of referral cases not that i've seen but other vets of um, rabbit vets have seen where it's actually encouraged um weird regrowth and we've had teeth that have you know, say if it was a mandibular tooth, cheek tooth you'd removed, that um, we had a tooth, they had a tooth growing then, you know, ventrally out the out the um, mandible. Um, and it was because they they just, you know, destroyed everything and, and there still was some, or they, or they set off some germinal tissue that was there. No, I just removed the tooth and checked that I have removed all of that tooth and um, that's it. Um, I don't pack that socket with anything. Do you do anything with that socket? No, and I find that, um, you know, I would try in uh, other small animal dentistry to um, to sew over the socket, um, but um, I find that almost impossible to do in rabbits, and so I don't pack anything into it, and I don't, uh, I just leave the clot to form um, and, um, and uh, don't do anything more to it. Yes. So um, what happens, Mark, if we do unfortunately have that tooth break? And remembering that oh, we're removing... I know the answer to this one. <laughs> we're removing these teeth 
because they're not right, they're diseased um, or they're loose. And um, because many of them are diseased, um, removing a non-diseased tooth is potentially a lot easier than these ones that are really poor quality. So it's not rare at all um, for these to unfortunately break. And that's why you need to have that patience, um, especially if you see one that is really poor quality and think, gee, this one may break. Take your time, take your time. But if it does break, Mark, and it breaks below the gum line, then what do you do? Wait. You just have to... um uh, wait to see if it regrows. Um, I definitely have had, um, and I know the answer to this because it's happened so often to me, I've definitely, and I think some of them are actually um, fractured and broken even before you start playing with them, um, trying to extract them. Um, and I definitely have sad some where I felt very confident and then radiographically confirmed there was remaining tissue there um, but it um, it didn't grow. Nothing grew, and uh, we radiographed subsequently, and that bit of avascular bone, of avascular tooth, um, wasn't causing any problem, and the bone had healed over, and there was no lump or infection. So happy days. Uh, but the majority of them, that where you do either break them in trying to get them out because they're easily damaged, or they're broken before you get them out, and you only remove part of the tooth. They will regrow um, and you'll be able to look at them in 12 or 16 weeks' time and there will be a tooth in the mouth and you can uh, have another go at it, Brendan. Unsurprisingly, I do exactly the same things. If it breaks, you head on to the next tooth if you're removing more than one and you tell the client that unfortunately it did break and you pre-warn them that that may happen before you start the surgery. Um, that's really important. And we wait and reassess that rabbit down the track. And yes, you may get lucky. And even though there's a little bit of a tooth root there, it may not become an issue, um, which is a little bit different than might happen in some other species where we'll be panicking a little bit about leaving a tooth root in there. And if it doesn't cause a problem, then end of story but if it does regrow we wait for it to regrow and to get to the height where we have another attack at that tooth and if then we're still having ongoing problems then we may consider doing some of the other techniques about like marsupialization we mentioned in that episode 142 for instance brendan i have one question for you when i was a uh... Um, much less experienced at doing these, I was frustrated with my access. And so I did a couple of times make a an incision in the cheek to get a much better look at the the um the tooth. Have you ever I, I, have you ever done anything as foolish as that? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to tell you that it was foolish because firstly, um you, if with the correct instruments you can get adequate access through the, the mouth normally. If it is so bad that you can't do anything um, through the mouth, um, if the tooth breaks or whatever, then you are much better to assess radiographically and then use the um, approach, the ventral approach to the mandible. But the other thing I found about trying to go through the cheek was that you become universally disoriented. You don't have all the same structures in place to tell you where you are and yes. uh, and you don't have any really significantly improved access in any case. So, uh, so I think 
I was a fool for doing it, Brendan. You're never a fool, Mark. <laughs> yeah, you, um, you're always searching for a new technique or a new method um, to, to improve treatments for the animals you see, Mark. And, and some of them don't work. Yes, well, but that's what being a pioneer is, Mark. <laughs> um, any final co comments? Oh, but my final comment, Mark, is don't forget to take pictures, ideally oh, a before and tip. after pick for the client. So once you've got the all the, the, the cheek dilators um, in there to open up that mouth, um, you can use our little... Um, spatulas etc to move the tongue aside and take a photo of the affected arcade before you remove that tooth and then take a picture afterwards and it can be as simple as just with your smartphone and you can also then add it to the clinic file the patient file in the software management program and the clients love the before and after pics um you know a photo tells a thousand words um so the, don't forget the, to do that. The, the practice I'm locoming at, Brendan, has a um, uh, an endoscope and they have an otoscopic, otoscopic attachment, um, a much shorter, you know, the rather than the laparoscopes that um, that we use. And crikey, it, uh, it's eye-opening the quality images that it gets inside rabbits' mouths and the photos that are taken. And as you said, the clients just lap it up when they can see the problems, the spurs or the malocclusions or the results of extractions, they seem much more compliant, keen to do the right thing. So um, those images, I reckon, are gold. Yep. Well, I think with that, we will finish our approach to cheek, simple cheek teeth removal in rabbits, and I'm sure we're going to have some more rabbit dental episodes in the future mark because it's such a common problem in pet rabbit exotic practice dental problems gee i'd i'd, I'd hate to think what percentage of the rabbit den, um, rabbit work i do is related to dental disease it would be pretty damn high i expect you'd be saying the same precisely the same it's it's it is um, sometimes almost a little bit disheartening how many of these rabbits do have dental disease. Yep. And with but that... We, well, we'll solve it. Yes. We're <laughs> out of here. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.